Well, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We are continuing our series through the book of Philippians. If you are uh, new with us, what we tend to do is we take a book of the Bible, we work our way through it section by section, uh, trying to keep, as we say, the text in the context uh, so that we can understand and rightly respond to what God has to say to us. This morning, we're going to be in verses 19 through 30. Uh, which we'll get to in just a moment. As many of you know, uh, two of my kids are in California at the same university, my middle two kids, and uh, my daughter's a freshman, my son is a sophomore. My, my daughter, I hear from her just about every day. I get a text from her just about every day. Uh, she FaceTimes me uh, several times a week, sometimes just to say hi, sometimes just to say I love you, which I absolutely love and I'm grateful for. My son, on the other hand, um, I only hear from him really if he needs something, um, usually uh, snacks or clothes or something of that. Now, he's never called me and asked for help with a book, getting a book sent to him, or any sort of uh, academic help or anything like that. It's always uh, something like snacks or money or gift cards. Um, but we were able to talk this week and had a great conversation with him. And somehow, God would allow me to kind of steer the conversation. You, know, you don't want to be corrective when you only talk to your kids every once in a while. But somehow the Lord was able to steer, was able to steer the conversation back to him sort of narrowing in on a major. So he's in the middle of his sophomore year or toward the beginning, and he really has no idea what he wants to do for a living, which is not uncommon for a 20-year-old. But I said, hey, it's kind, of, it's kind of time for us to really start thinking seriously about what you may major in, right? Because you're going to need to start taking some of the classes in your major. And, uh, and by way of encouragement, I share with him a little bit of my journey, how God, before God called me to ministry... I spent some time in marketing and advertising in Charlotte, North Carolina, and then sales and sales management, and then went back to school for television broadcasting, all of that before um, I went to seminary for pastoral ministry. And, um, and I said, look, it's okay, but we need to start thinking about you know, what you want to do. And, and then I shared, now he knew all that, he's heard all my stories before, but he, he, what he didn't know was what I added to that was, I want to give you some advice that was given to me, really in virtually every sort of profession I've studied for, and some of the greatest piece of advice that I can remember, and that is, someone told me once, uh, find someone that you really respect, that you really uh, you think is an honorable person of a good reputation, someone that you would like to sort of be like, and, and, and follow their example, you know, uh, emulate them. And of course, this is, this is good advice when you're choosing a career, but it goes beyond that. It certainly goes beyond career success. This goes to the very heart, actually, of our spiritual, moral, and relational development. Last week, I opened my message by asking the question, can people really change? Does anyone really change over time? And as we looked at the Scriptures together, we saw the answer is yes. God changes us as we work out what He is working in us. Important in that transformation is our obedience, and so that's a big part of it, our obedience to God's commands. Uh, and along with that, we saw last week, it also important is our choice, our choice to, to see beauty and good and glory in what God is doing in our hearts and our lives and in our world, rather than simply focus on the things we don't have and see negative, which leads to the grumbling and the murmuring and the complaining that God forbids that we saw last week. So we saw a couple of ways that God changes us and molds us. Well, this morning, we're going to see yet another critical way that God actually changes us and transforms us, and that is through godly examples. The Christian life is caught 
as much as it is taught. So this morning we're going to see three things. The impact, the importance, and the limitations of godly mentors. The impact, the importance, and the limitations of godly mentors. Let's look together at the text of Scripture, Philippians chapter 2. I'll read verses 19 through 24. Here reads the word of the Lord. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by the news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with the Father he has served me in the gospel. Serve with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So remember, Paul's writing from prison in Rome. Uh, He's under house arrest, which was bad. It could have been worse had he not been a Roman citizen, but it was bad. And, of course, he can't go anywhere. And he really, really longs to write, to see the church at Philippi that he helped to plant some 12 years earlier. So you, you remember Paul's pattern. What he does is he goes to a city. He reasons with people, he preaches the gospel, he engages with people, and, he, and God, as God brings people to saving faith, he plants a church there. And then he pours himself into the leaders, he invests in leaders, developing them, teaching them, and so on. And then, after a while, he will turn that church over to the leaders that he's invested in, and he moves on to plant a church somewhere else. And what he does, though, he doesn't just sort of leave that church alone. He will then plan to revisit that church over time. He planted the church at Philippi, invested in the leaders, turned it over to leaders, and then he visited some five years later to encourage the people in their faith to continue to invest in leaders and so on. Well, here it is, 12 years or so after he planted the church at Philippi, and he wants to get back there to see those people. But he doesn't know what's going to happen. He doesn't know if he's going to be released from prison. He doesn't know if he's going to be executed. And so he says, I really want to come see you, but either way, if I'm not able to come see you, he said, I want to send Timothy to you. You know Timothy, and you know his love for you. Timothy is a well-known person in the New Testament. He is the first, second-generation Christian that we have mentioned in the New Testament. Um, His mother was Eunice. His grandmother was Lois. They were early Christian converts. They they probably came to saving faith through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Timothy is Paul's protege, and Timothy really loves these people. Timothy has spent time with him. He has enjoyed table fellowship. He's had meals with them. He's been in their homes. They have served together. They have suffered together. They know Timothy, and he knows them. Look at verse 22 again. Paul says, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. You know, we have a few sayings that we use to describe a child's resemblance to his or her parents. Sort of some well-worn sayings. We might say, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Uh, We might say that uh, he or she is a chip off the old block. We might say that that child is the spitting image of his or her parent. Um, I had some family members whom I hadn't seen in a long time. They actually were at my son's wedding. Uh, this is like this is in July, and so I officiated the wedding. And I was up front. The wedding was just getting started. The attendants had yet to walk forward, so it's just my son and I, my 22-year-old son and I, standing up front. And I had some again some family members I hadn't seen in a long time. 
And they, they would tell me later, they said, when we walked in and we saw Quinn, that's my son's name, up there with you, like we, we had to do a double take. That looked exactly like you when you were 22. It was actually kind of scary how much you guys looked alike. So, of course, I told my son, someone's giving you a very great compliment here. Um, he didn't see it that way, but um, he, they said, you guys look exactly alike. You look so much alike. Uh, this happens sometimes. You can look at a, 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 a boy and say, that, he looks just like his dad, or a girl and say, she looks just like her mom. Well, the reason that Paul wants to send Timothy is because Timothy shares Paul's likeness. Like a son resembles his father, Timothy resembles Paul, not so much in looks. I mean, they were, they were years apart. But in terms of their interests and their passion and their character and their purpose, they had a, a very strong resemblance. Now, why is that? Because Timothy had served with Paul in the gospel, verse 22, and by doing so, he started to pick up on not just Paul's mannerisms, which I'm sure he probably picked up on, but more importantly, Paul's heart for these people. See, what Paul's doing is he's holding up Timothy and Epaphroditus, we'll meet him in just a moment, and he's saying to the readers and us by extension, saying these are models for you to follow because they resemble Jesus in what they love and in how they love. It is through these examples that God will continue to work through the folks at Philippi. Now, here's our first point this morning. God's transforming work in us is typically done through the most ordinary means, the people he places around us. Now, we won't camp out here long, but this, this concept of means is actually a very important one. Um, sometimes God works what we call immediately and directly, and sometimes he works immediately and indirectly. So, so, for example, if God wants to heal someone of a disease, it's nothing for God to rid someone's body of cancer. That's easy for God. He can do that easily. It's no problem at all. Now, he can actually supernaturally rid someone's body of cancer, or he can work through doctors, surgeons, medicine, prescriptions, all those things. So one is working immediately, the other is working immediately. If God wants a building to be torn down to its studs or to its foundation, he can just cause a storm or an earthquake or whatever he wants to do, and he can just level it if he wants. Or he could... Put in the hearts of men to destroy that building, to bring it apart brick by brick. So, so God works sometimes immediately and sometimes immediately. But what we see is the way that God transforms us most often is by, at least partly, by the people around us. Think about how you became the person you are today. What has made you into the person that you are today? Now, now certainly, you can think of probably a variety of things. Maybe there's a book you read. That was, that was very influential, maybe a class you took in school, maybe a movie you saw that just kind of you know, rocked your world or whatever it is. Um, there are a lot of things you can think of that say, well, this really had a profound impact on me. Uh, maybe it's an experience that you, you went through that was very shaping in terms of the way you see things. Um, but typically, most influential in our development as humans are the people that God surrounds us with, our parents our parents, uh, our friends' parents, our teachers, our leaders, our pastors, our friends. So many things we do, we don't even realize it, I think, on some level. We don't realize just how much 
we're actually doing what the people that are around us do. I, I, my son, so I've got two kids in Southern California who are in school. i got another son who's in Southern California who's in seminary. The last time we went to visit him, we'd been with him like five minutes, and we hugged, and, we, and then I asked him, I said, hey, how's your, uh, how's your car running? And I thought to myself, like, where in the world did that come from? Like, that's a strange, why would I, I don't care, why do I ask him that? And I realized, every time I see my parents, that's what they ask me, the first thing, hey, how are your cars running? I don't know why that means so much to them, but they always ask me that. And I found myself, I wasn't even paying attention, I'm asking my son about how, I haven't seen him in a long time, how his car is running. Like, I really care about whether he changed the oil or the inflation of his tires, but it, it, we, we, we're influenced by the people around us in ways we don't even realize, and not just as children, of course, as adults. And not just related to mundane things, but the most important things. As I said a moment ago, the Christian life is, is caught as much as it is taught. And this is not to undermine teaching. We're all about teaching. Expositional preaching and catechism and teaching at every level. It's absolutely critically important. But there's something to be said for imitation. And you know, for those of us who are committed to Christ-centered preaching, for what's called, to what's called a redemptive historical hermeneutic, which just means we see Jesus in all the scriptures, we mean that... We believe that the Bible is all about Jesus from beginning to end. It's the story of God's, uh, God's plan to redeem a sin-cursed and broken world through the person and work of His Son. For those of us who are in that camp, and I'm squarely in it, sometimes we minimize the value of imitation. And I know that I've done this in the past, but the theme of imitation actually runs throughout the Bible. Not indiscriminate following, not blind allegiance but surrounding ourselves with people whose example, though definitely imperfect, we'd like to emulate. In fact, Paul will say in the next chapter, this very same letter, Philippians 3, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, it takes a lot of boldness, doesn't it? It takes a lot of boldness to say to someone, imitate me. Watch what I'm doing and act like me. Do what I do. Well, what makes Paul or Timothy or anyone else worthy of being imitating, imitated is that they treasure what Jesus treasures. They love what Jesus loves. They have the mindset of Jesus. Paul says that Timothy has the mind, not for his own interest, but for the interests of others. And you see what he's doing here. This is actually a very direct reference back to the earlier part of the letter, which describes Jesus, chapter 2 and verse 4, not looking to his own interests but actually looking to the interests of others. It is a very selfless and others-focused interest, but not everyone has that. In fact, I think verses 20 and 21 are two of the saddest in this whole letter, maybe even in the whole Bible. Paul says this, For I have no one like him, that is Timothy, who will, genuinely, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests not those of Jesus Christ. I think that's a devastating thing to read, isn't it? And it's heartbreaking. It had to be a heartbreaking thing to write. Paul says, I'd really love to send you Alexander, but the thing is, he's so wrapped up in his own career and his personal advancement that he has no time for the kingdom or the people of God. He's all about his own advancement. He says, you know, I'd really wish I could send to you Helen, but, but she's so caught up in her family and her children and, and, and the idolatry of her children that she doesn't even think about the kingdom of God or the church of God. He says, oh, I'd really love to send to you Stephanos, but he's always gone. 
He's always traveling. He's never around. He doesn't seem to be inclined to look out for the people of God. He's always traveling, earning money, prepping for an early retirement. In stark contrast to those who seek their own interest, Timothy actually genuinely cares about the interest of the Philippians. Their spiritual development and his care for them has been stoked by his time with Paul. Again, who loves these people deeply. And I wonder how much we see of ourselves in the Alexanders, the Helens, the Stephanoses that I just mentioned that Paul alluded to. I wonder how much of ourselves we see in them. How much our career advancement, our personal agendas, our financial goals, our family comfort, our kids' sports, how much those things actually take priority over the people of God and the things of God. I wonder how much we see in those folks or how much we see in Timothy and his genuine concern for others. I was so encouraged this last week by the comments and questions I I received after last week's message. This idea of how people change is an important thing, and I realize that going into it. How do we change? How can we help people change? How can we change ourselves? We all want to see change. Well, as we talked about last week, it is God's work. God will do it, but He changes us most often as He instructs us and edifies us and sharpens us by His Word, through His Spirit, but through the people that we are around. Uh, when Gerald McDermott, who, was, who just recently retired in June of 2020 from Beeson Divinity School, uh, theologian and author, I don't agree with everything he says. Some of the stuff's kind of out there, but he does say some really helpful stuff. When he was asked the question, how do people change, here's what he said. We might not like to hear it, but the way to desire more of God, and hence change, is to come closer to where He pours out His grace. That is in the church. The great temptation today is to think we can be Lone Ranger Christians and grow outside of the church. That is a myth that comes from the devil himself. Now that's pretty scathing, isn't it? God changes us as He works in us through the people He surrounds us with. And not only does He, does he change us through the members of His church, but He changes us in ways we never thought even imaginable. Timothy's, in here, in this case, God causes Timothy's heart, wasn't just his new skill he was learning, Timothy's heart to overflow with compassion and care for these people. Again, it's not just a change in behavior, although that's a good thing. He didn't just go from being very timid to to bold or less timid, although we, we have indication that that was true. But he changed actually at the heart level. He changed in his affections. Here's our second point as it relates to the impact of godly models. A compassionate and gracious heart can be cultivated by observing others who imitate Jesus. When we think about the things we can learn from other people, we tend to think, or let me say it this way, I tend to think of skills, uh, expertise, maybe information. Um, and these are things that we tend to think of. You know, I can learn a skill on how to do something. I can learn information, maybe uh, how to develop a system or a process for whatever it is. So we, those are the things we, we tend to think about that we learn from other people. But what's interesting is the Bible, what the Bible is concerned with passing down is actually much deeper than that. The Proverbs tell us that whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Now, what's the wisdom that the Bible's talking about here? 
It's not talking about simply a skill or the understanding of a principle, but the wisdom the Scriptures are talking about is a kind of heart knowledge, really a kind of understanding of how the heart works, how desire works. You might call it an anthropology, how we relate to one another as humans. And the sort of wisdom that the Scriptures commend and desire to be passed down is actually, again, an understanding of human nature. We might even say a concern for the greater good, a concern for our fellow humans. Paul commends Timothy to the Philippians as someone who has served with me in the gospel. In other words, Timothy has looked after the spiritual development of these people. He desires what's best for them, their progress in the faith. He deeply cares about them. He loves them. He knows them. And Paul seems to suggest here that these are things that he has learned, at least in part, from the apostle. Compassion and generosity. Can you believe that these are things we can learn that are actually, these these can be learned behaviors and learned dispositions. Grace and self-sacrifice. These are things that we can learn from others. Now consider this guy named Epaphroditus. Look at 25 through 27. Paul says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So Epaphroditus was a member of the church at Philippi. He was part of the church there that Paul planted in Philippi. And when the church found out that Paul was in prison in Rome, what they did is they took up a collection of very important and necessary things, and they would send them from Philippi to Rome, which is some 600 miles, so it's no short journey. And so uh, well, it was kind of interesting. If you, if you were, we think about, I don't know how often you think about prison today, but um, if you think about prison, we think about three square meals, right, and exercise time or whatever. That's not the way it was uh, in the ancient Greco-Roman world. If you were to eat, someone had to provide for you, mainly. And so Paul, being a prisoner, he needed someone to provide his necessary uh, items. And so the church at Philippi, who loved Paul, they sent these things to Paul from Epaphroditus, who actually stayed around to help Paul. But he got really sick in doing so. In fact, he got so sick that he almost died. There 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 were moments there. There were moments where it was really touch and go as to whether or not he would survive. And the fact that he was very sick and had almost died, that alarming news had gotten back to the Philippians, and they were very distressed over it. They were heartbroken. So Paul wants to get a healthy Epaphroditus back to them in order to relieve their fears. You know, if you want to get a message to someone today, there are dozens of methods, and some that I'm sure I don't know about technologically, but you can use Snapchat or WhatsApp or Instant Messenger or Facebook Messenger or email or text or FaceTime or Skype or any number of things. But you didn't have those things back then. If you wanted to get a message to someone, you had to send a real human messenger. And so Paul says, I want to send to you Epaphroditus. So Epaphroditus will get on the road to Philippi immediately, carrying news of Paul's situation. Also, Paul's gratitude. He was kind of like sort of a human thank you note from the Apostle Paul and giving the church another reason because of the restored health of Epaphroditus to praise God and to trust in His sovereignty. But there's another reason. There's another reason that Paul wants to send Epaphroditus. 
New Testament scholar Dennis Johnson writes this, Paul had another not-so-ulterior motive in sending Epaphroditus home. The Philippians need another human role model to show them, and a man whom they knew well, what it means in the nitty-gritty of everyday life to share the mindset of Christ so thoroughly that one is ready to serve to the point of death following the Savior's footsteps. We need good role models because God works through the influence of other believers. And I think it's probably a fair time for us to ask the question, who do I have in my life that serves as a mentor to me? Regardless of what where you are in your spiritual journey, your spiritual maturity, who do you have that you look to? Who do you have that you turn to for biblical counsel, for advice, for encouragement when you're struggling? And I guess we can flip it around and ask the other question too. Who are you mentoring? Who are you pouring into? I got a text this week from a, or last week from a young man that I mentored for a couple years in Corona. He and his wife just love them to death. They're probably 20 years younger than we are, and they're over at our house all the time having meals together, part of our small group. And um, he was a teacher and believed that God called him to pastoral ministry. So he's part of a church plant in Rochester, Minnesota. And he sent me a text. He said, John, I would love it if you would listen. I just preached my first sermon. I would love it if you would listen to it and give me some feedback and give me some input. And then I got a, a text about it. I hadn't responded to it. I got a text an hour later and said, you know what? Scratch that. I just listened to it again. Don't listen to it. It's, uh, I, I'm so embarrassed that I sent it to you. I said, no, let me listen to it. Let me, let me listen to it, and, and, and I'd be glad to offer some feedback. So I sat down on my back porch. You guys are getting tired of hearing about my back porch, but sat there on my back porch. I listened to this sermon, and I was blown away by it. I was blown away by it. The Christ-centeredness, I was blown away by the shepherding, by, the, by how responsibly he handled the text. And so I had a few things to offer him by way of constructive criticism. But I said, look, pay very little attention to this. Here's what I want you to hear. I praise God for the way he's working in you. I found myself halfway through that sermon, not an evaluator or, or offering a critique, but just being nourished by the scriptures, by being encouraged by the gospel. We need people in our lives who will mentor us, and we need people in our lives that we are willing to mentor. Now, what do you think people are more reluctant to do? Be mentored by someone or be a mentor. It's the latter by far. Now, we don't want people telling us what to do, but we would much rather do that than actually come alongside and mentor someone. And one of the reasons is, I think, because we're afraid that you have to be perfect in order to do so. I have to have all the answers. I can't ever not know something. I have to be perfect. This is why I love the last part of this section, verses 28 through 30. Paul says, I am more eager to send him, that is Epaphroditus, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again. And then look at this next phrase. I'll come back to it. And that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Paul says that, that men like Epaphroditus, that is not to say the most vocal, not the most affluent, not the most prominent, not the most respect, whatever, not the most well-known in the community. Men like Epaphroditus, that is men who share the heart of Christ, are to be honored and celebrated. And then he says, almost scandalously, he says in verse 28, 
He's eager to send Epaphroditus to the, to the Philippians so that they can rejoice and, Paul says, so that he might be less anxious. Now, why would someone say that they would like to be less anxious? Because they're anxious, right? Because they're struggling with anxiety. There's some anxiousness that they're dealing with. But this is the same apostle who will say in the chapter, the same letter in a different chapter, do not be anxious about anything. But in, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Is it possible that when Paul wrote the command, do not be anxious, he himself was anxious? Yes, it is. Absolutely, it is. In fact, he says he wants to be less anxious, which means that he was anxious. Now, it's funny to me the lengths to which some Bible commentators will go uh, to talk about, they'll say, well, the anxiousness that Paul was experiencing in chapter 2 is very different than the anxiousness that he was forbidding in chapter 4. Like, why do we have to do that? Do we, want to, do, we, do we expect or believe that the biblical writers or the people in the Bible were perfect? We know they weren't. We know that they were decidedly imperfect. They were decidedly flawed people. Father Abraham was a liar who tried to pass off his own wife as his sister. Jacob, the namesake of Israel, was a con artist and conniver. You know the mess that Noah got himself into when he got drunk. David, the, the man after God owns, God's own heart, was a man who was a murderer, at least by extension, and an adulterer. I love Psalm 119. Of course, it's so rich. Um, the longest of all the Psalms by a landslide. David talks about how much he loves God's law, cherishes his precepts, delights in God's command. commands. For 175 verses, he says this. And then the very last verse of Psalm 119, verse 176. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. He says, oh, I love your law, but I don't keep it. I cherish your precepts, but I don't abide by them. I love your commands, but I've fallen way short of what you require. All the Bible's great men and women were imperfect, and Paul was no different. In fact, he would say, what does he say in Romans 7? He says, look, why is it that the things I really, really want to do, I don't do? And the things that I really wish I wouldn't do, I just keep doing over and over again. You follow the trajectory of Paul's life and ministry. You follow the dating of, of some of the letters that he wrote, and you'll notice that he became more and more aware of his own sin tendencies. He starts out in his ministry emphasizing that he's not least among the apostles. He's a super apostle. And then later on he says, Paul, an apostle. And then later it's Paul, the least of the apostles. And then it's Paul, a sinner. And then finally in one of his latest books, 1 Timothy, he says, Paul, the chief of sinners. This is what Christian maturation looks like a greater awareness of our own sin and brokenness, and a greater ability by God's grace to rest in the finished work of Christ. So why bring up Paul's imperfections? Why, why am I up here talking about the flaws of the saints? Well, I think the reason that Paul says what he does the way he does in this passage is that even though he's holding up these men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, as godly role models, he wants to reiterate to his audience that neither he nor Timothy nor Epaphroditus is perfect. In fact, very far from it. That brings us to our final point this morning as it relates to the limitations of role models. 
it won't be our perfect example that encourages believers nor draws anyone to Jesus. It will be our vulnerability. How often do we see in the scriptures how much God desires honesty over pretense? Openness over guardedness. How often do we see in the scriptures that God desires confession over secrecy? An accurate understanding of ourselves rather than an inflated view. Remember the great story Jesus told in Luke's gospel? These two men are going to the temple to pray and One's a very well-known religious leader that people would look at and recognize. The other is a tax collector that people would look at and recognize for the wrong reasons because he was a despised person. And the, the religious leader, the prominent religious leader goes into the temple. He says, oh, God, I'm so grateful and I thank you that I'm not like these other sinners. I'm so thankful that I've not done what these other people have done. And the tax collector goes and he says, God, here I am, a sinner. Have mercy on me. I've done all the things you told me not to do. Have mercy on me. And what's Jesus, what's the application that Jesus makes? He says, I tell you this, this tax collector returned home justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Everybody in the world knows that we're not perfect. So why, who are we really serving by pretending to be? We're not going to help anybody by pretending to be something we're not. And besides that, it won't be our holiness that saves anyone. It will be the gospel, the good news that God has provided a way of salvation for sinners like you and me. It will be the announcement that God loved the world so much that He sent His Son, the only true perfect one, to die for a sin-cursed world, to redeem it, and make it new. Yeah, we want to be godly examples. I want to be a godly example. I want my children, I want the people of this church, I want the people in my neighborhood to be able to look to me as an example to follow. But I want to be quick to confess. I blow it. I don't have it all together. I'm a sinner. I'm in desperate need of God's grace. So what I really want to be an example of is a person who repents and a person who's humble and a person who recognizes without the gospel, I have no hope at all. Paul says, presents these men as examples to follow, but he's very quick to include in a very subtle way. Look, none of us is perfect. There's only one perfect example in the Scriptures. There's only one person who fully obeyed God. And that person is the same one as we talked about last week, was so obedient to God the Father that he was obedient even unto death on a cross. In him we find forgiveness, but in him we also find freedom. The freedom to be real, the freedom to be vulnerable, because the only righteousness that really matters in the end, at least in terms of God's economy, is the righteousness that is ours by faith, not by works. You know, so much of our lives is really spent defending, isn't it? Defending ourselves, defending our position, defending our actions, defending our words, why we raised our voice, why we were late, why we responded the way we did, why we dropped the ball, why we made that call, why we were angry, why we pulled out in front of that car, whatever it is, spent defending ourselves. But the good news of the gospel is we don't have to defend ourselves before God. Christ is our defense. He has silenced our accusers. He has cleansed us from every stain. He was sentenced and executed in our stead. 
so that now what do we receive? We receive the smile of God rather than His condemnation. And when we realize that our righteousness is a gift credited to us by faith, we can actually be real about our failures. I'm going to end with a statement. An author and Old Testament scholar Chad Bird points out that a little bit of vulnerability among Christians would go a long way toward giving a witness to the world about what the church is really here for. Jesus didn't found a gym where we can go and flex our biblical biceps in front of mirrors so that everyone can see how hard we've worked at being holy. He didn't create a virtual, real, a virtual spiritual reality where we can gather together with like-minded virtual reality users and talk about things of virtually little or no importance. God founded a church, which is a little bit like a hospital. It's a little bit like a mental ward. It's a little bit of a weekly reunion of sinners who have made a mess of their lives. It's a place where self-proclaimed righteous people who have it all together will be bored because there's nothing for them there. Church is for real sinners who really sin with other real sinners, for here they find the friend of sinners, Jesus the Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a beautiful passage of Scripture in which we find great consolation this morning. It will not be our goodness. It will not be our works. It will not even be our example that will esteem us to you, nor, nor get us in with you. It will be the work of your Son, the benefits credited to us by faith. And Lord, I do pray that you would help us to be examples that people can follow, examples in humility, examples in uh, faith, examples in service and sacrifice. Father, but never, uh, let us never believe or be duped into believing that it's on us and our example to save people. We know that the gospel is the power and the salvation. Help us to be quick to rest in it. Help us to trust in it fully and to be glad to proclaim it, for it is indeed very good news. Help us, Lord, to, to realize and remember this morning that our worth is not in what we own. It's not in what we've achieved. It's not in who we are. It's not in what anyone else thinks of us. Our worth is inextricably tied into the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross for our salvation and by which we are declared sons and daughters of the living God. Father, will you have mercy on us this morning, and will you give us the grace to believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.